0: Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips or for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. It's 2020, and Americans are burdened by student loan debt more than ever. I am one of them. I've been pretty vocal about the fact that I have student loan debt. It's something that I don't love, but I refuse to be embarrassed about. I am a first-generation college graduate. I went on to law school out of state and also got my master's in tax law. Those degrees have been key to my success and I wouldn't give them up for anything. More than a house or a car, they have been an investment that continue to pay off. That still doesn't mean that I love paying them back. Unlike other kinds of debt, Student loans feel like they sneak up on you because they continue to accrue interest even while you're in school. When you get out of school, they're much bigger than you thought they'd be. And while Capital One and my mortgage company put a lot of thought into whether I was qualified to borrow and how much I could reasonably pay back, most student loans don't appear to work like that. Companies may hand over hundreds of thousands of dollars to students who may not even make enough money to repay that income. I'm not alone as a borrower. According to Student Loan Hero, 69% of the class of 2019 took out student loans. They graduated with an average debt of almost $30,000. And 14% of their parents took out an average of $37,000 in federal parent-plus loans. That adds up. Americans owe over $1.64 trillion in student loan debt. That's about $587 billion more than the total credit card debt in the U.S., And pre-pandemic, over 11% of those student loans were 90 days or more delinquent or in default. It's a problem affecting about 45 million borrowers, and that number is growing. So I wanted to find out what your options are if you're in that situation and who you could turn to to help. So I asked Jay Fleischman on the show. Jay has been a lawyer for over 25 years, focusing his practice on helping people with bill problems. He's licensed to practice law in New York and California. He helped to build and run the Student Loan Law Workshop, the first and largest training ground for attorneys seeking to learn how to help their client with educational debt. He's helped thousands of federal and private student loan borrowers lower their payments, negotiate settlements, get out of default, and qualify for loan forgiveness programs. His practice includes defending student loan lawsuits filed by companies such as Naviant and National Collegiate Student Loan Trust. In addition, he's represented thousands of individuals and families in Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 bankruptcy cases. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jay. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So college debt is one of these things that people don't like to talk about. um, And I think part of it is the whole narrative surrounding student debt. There's this idea that like if you owe, it's because you're lazy or dumb. And I think some people just don't understand how expensive college can be. And I also think a lot of that kind of goes hand in hand with the idea that while college costs have increased over time, salaries have remained flat. So we see all these folks in debt, but nobody wants to talk about it. So today I kind of just wanted to talk about it, right? (laughs) <laughs> so um, I know that you've, you've uh, represented a lot of folks that have found themselves in deep problems with debt, not necessarily folks who, uh, like, I- I'm currently repaying, but not everyone is in a situation where they can repay on time. So in your experience, what kinds of things lead folks to find themselves in situations where they maybe can't pay back those student loans? Like When they come to you, what are kind of the common threads that you're seeing? Common threads are, when
1: it comes to federal student loan repayment, it is so confusing. Yes. There is, There are so many options to choose from when it comes to repayment. It is as clear as mud. It is the ultimate uneven playing field because you've got, on the one hand, the servicers and the government that are charged with administering these programs, and on the other side, you've got 18 to... Twenty-something year olds who really don't have any background in understanding things like how interest works and right. how it capitalizes and why your why your balance goes up even during the four years of undergraduate. So that's a major problem on the private student loan side. It's, ugh, it is the biggest mess in the world. Private student loans, and I know I'm supposed to be more professional sounding than that, but it is an absolute mess. Private student loans, the vast majority of them come with the requirements for co or guarantors. So somebody else is in the boat with you. So if it sinks, you're going to sink them along with you. That's always right. going to be mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or somebody with deeper pockets, potentially with assets mm-hmm. to lose. And private student loans are not bound by any of the federal regulations that allow for things like forbearances and deferments and income-driven repayment, long-term forgiveness and discharge and things like that. And so you're dealing with these two very separate and distinct systems that are thought of as being one and the same when in reality, they are absolutely not. So that's one of the major reasons why people are going to come to me or somebody like me in the first place. But just to give some context, and I always go back to this because. I just turned 50 this year and God, I never thought I was going to be this old in my life. But (laughs) I just turned 50. I went into undergrad in August of 1987, declared myself as an economics major. And then what, six weeks later, the bottom dropped out of the stock market in October of 87. And, you know, there goes my econ major.
0: Right. (laughs)
1: Even, (laughs) yeah, even though I was too bullheaded to change it. But so I went into, Into college in 1987 and I graduated in 1991. I went to the State University of New York at Binghamton, which is an excellent public institution. Now, four years in college, undergraduate, four years of tuition cost a grand total of $5,700 for four years. Now, (laughs) sure, housing and, and food is on top of that, but four years. $5,700 this year. Hang on. I just had it in front of me this year. I think for in-state tuition at my college is cost of attendance is $25,670 for an in-state and that's per year. Wow. So you're going to go through four years of my college that i My parents actually paid for my undergraduate because they could; they could afford to do that five thousand seven hundred dollars for four years of undergraduate. And you're going to tell me that suddenly it's worth a hundred thousand dollars? I don't think it is, but I tell you that because my parents often don't understand what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of parents don't understand what their kids do for a living. (laughs) I'm just proud of you, honey. You're doing great. But to their credit, they They want to understand more of it. And so I'm talking to my parents about what I what I do and student loan work. And my dad looks at me and says, I don't understand it. Why don't these kids just pay their student loans?
0: I see this all the time on Facebook. Exactly what you're saying. Exactly what you're saying. Exactly.
1: My dad's like, Well, you know, we paid for your undergraduate, but even if we hadn't, it wasn't all that expensive. And you go out and you get a job, and that's the end of the story. These dumb kids shouldn't be going to uh, four years of getting drunk and, you know, majoring in underwater basket weaving, which is <laughs> right. the term that my dad always uses. Mm-hmm. It took a really long time to explain to them the fact that tuition has exploded and wages have not. Exactly. And an undergraduate education when I went to college was, was a thing. You know, you had a college degree. Now it's a high school diploma. Yes. Don't really you you don't have those open doors of opportunity just coming out of out of school with four-year degree, with certain exceptions, of course. And these are the problems that students are coming to me with and parents. I I speak to as many parents as I do students, because parents don't understand it either
0: oh I'm not surprised my my daughter is a first year in college this year and we're very lucky because she won a very healthy scholarship to the college where she ended up going but it was a really stressful process because she's a smart kid and she could get in a lot of places but we had discussions because I don't know and and it was funny because I've had these discussions with my parents my parents would say you know where's Kate where's she gonna go and and we, I would say, well, we're going to wait and see where she's accepted, and then look at the money because some of the schools where she were, was accepted um, and and where she wanted to go were upwards of seventy thousand dollars when you took into consideration, you know, room and board as well. And and I realize that's geographically different. Like in the Northeast, it tends to be more expensive. Those and that's where we are. So most of the places that she looked she ended up going to to college in the southeast uh, in north carolina where um, where i'm from and it was for a good school still much cheaper even without the scholarship still much cheaper than some of the other colleges and that's why it's weird because you hear people say just go cheaper but one of the places where she was like, like one of the schools she was looking at was not an ivy league it was in philadelphia and it was still 70,000 She got a scholarship at that school for over $100,000, which feels like it would be amazing until you realize, you know, you do the math, 70 times four is 280. That still means that we're paying $180,000. It's a lot of money.
1: Exactly. And I get a lot of pushback from people who are not involved in this universe, who aren't parents or where their kids haven't just come out and they they went through... Either higher education a long time ago or they didn't go at all. And and there's that that lack of understanding. And it's almost parroting back the line of well start at community college and then transfer or work for a couple of years and then go to college, or you know, don't go to college at all. And and there there are kernels of truth to all of those arguments, but they don't really take into account just how expensive it is. And I I get a lot of parents who say, well, you know, I, I scrimped and saved and we cut back for years and we saved all this money so that our kids wouldn't have loans. And my response to them is particularly recently is, well, wouldn't it have been great if you didn't have to scrimp and save for 20 years? to be able to afford to send your kid to school for four years. Right.
0: And why do you think this is like, why do you think this mentality is where it is? Cause I, I will tell you, so I, you know, I work with a lot of uh, folks who are in tax debt, which means mm-hmm. I get to see a lot of balance sheets and I see a lot of income statements and, and the same stigma does not apply to the person who bought the $60,000 pickup truck. As does apply to a sixty thousand dollars student loan, and I find that weird. And I don't know if it's because a pickup truck is something you can touch, and a degree is not. Like, do you do you have a sense of why is it that people don't value education in the same way? And by the way, I'm not suggesting that you what you pay for education is appropriate. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to go into whether or not it's worth it, like in terms of cost, because even sure. if you and I agreed, it doesn't change anything, right? Right, but what like why is it that we're willing to look at certain kinds of debt, and not just on the cons- like not just on the consumer side, like even like Congress. Congress will let you forgive the debt on your truck or the sofa that you bought at Macy's um, in a bankruptcy, but not your student loan. So why do you think we have this different view of education when it comes to debt? Or maybe you don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of I'm just wondering because I'm My- I'm co- constantly flummoxed my sense of it
1: is that there is we have a cultural sensibility that we as people in the United States of America work hard and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and education is part of it to to those people who who value a college education mm-hmm. you need to go to college to make something of yourself to be able to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps And if you are unable to pay the debt, then you have failed in your getting through the front door of that American dream of that stick-to-itiveness, hard work, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You went to college so that you can make more money. And if you don't take advantage of that education to make as much as you can and to pay off that debt as quickly as you can, that's your fault. You were given the tools. You knew better because they taught you better. And I think that that, there's that underlying sense of of what education means and why we utilize it Mm -hmm. because we are Americans and we work harder and we should be able to overcome all obstacles. It's different. And in fairness, I think that there's an enormous amount of stigma around consumer debt as well. I, I don't want to discount that. Right. But the sense is that if you get into consumer debt and you're in over your head, you overspent like a drunken sailor. That's and and I'm look, I'm a consumer bankruptcy attorney. I don't buy into that narrative at all. But there is a lot of that narrative, particularly in the universe of personal finance in general. There are certain media personalities who are very vocal about doing things about talking about it in that way. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of being irresponsible, but it's not it's a different sort of irresponsibility. If you've got college debt, you're given the tool and you failed to use it.
0: which I'm amazed by because i you know i I consider myself a a pretty smart kid, but when I went to college, I was sixteen years old. First generation college student, which I know you know is increasingly rare because we, as you mentioned, it's uh, I think less common for folks not to be expected to go to college. But but from where I grew up, it it was not the thing that everybody did, and nobody talked to me in advance about borrowing meant what. Like I, I was smart enough to understand that if you borrow something, you pay it back. Like that, I got. I understood what interest meant on a really basic level. I got it. But you know, nobody says to you. If you borrow money in college and then you choose to go on to graduate school, that the first dollar that you borrowed is going to accrue interest for eight years (laughs) before you even get a chance to pay it back. And then I will also say that when you get a credit card, um, my credit card, if let's say it's Capital One, pretty much Capital One stays Capital One, right? So when I get my credit card bill every month, I can look at it and know that Capital One says I owe X. The weird thing about student loans, also things that people don't tell you, stuff I've told my my kid is, you know, they, the, they buy and sell them so quickly that when you get a bill and it's from, you know, the graduate loan services or whoever, and you look at the bank name, next month it might be a different bank. <laughs> and trying to sort it all out can be really confusing. It's really difficult to figure out sometimes by looking at a statement. And again, I, I'm a person who works with numbers on a regular basis you know, how much did I borrow originally? Who did I borrow it from? What was the interest rate? What is the amount that is the minimum I can repay? And then what happens if I pay more than that? Like, what are my options for repayment? My credit card statement actually tells me in the corner, if you pay the minimum, it'll take you how many years or months or whatever to pay back. Um, And then it tells you like what they recommend you pay. I don't get that on my student loan bill, you know? So it's funny to me when we talk about like, you know, people talk about things in terms of education and tools. We actually aren't giving our kids these tools. Like, we're not talking about this in high school. When you go and have, because, you know, everybody has to do that weird financial aid workshop or whatever. They don't don't talk to you about this. They they give you the basics. Like, you're going to borrow money, you have to pay it back. Make sure that you have a plan. (laughs) But you don't know what that plan is, especially when you're just going into college. You don't know. What if you decide to go to medical school or law school? What if you decide to get a PhD? What if you decide, To take a year off? What if you decide to do an internship? Like these things we don't talk about. Sure.
1: Well that that's because the high schools at at the high school level look at what they what they look to as a point of pride. They look at our graduates go to these Ivy League schools or these highly ranked schools, or you know, this this is what our graduates do. They don't necessarily care how you, how you pay for the school. They just care that you get in and you go right? so that they can tell somebody next year, oh, 12 of our students went to, went to Penn State or wherever it is because there's the cachet.
0: Yeah. So let's assume that you did do responsible things. You, you borrowed no more than you needed to. You, uh, you know, did well in school. You have a job. And then you have to start paying it back. and then something like Covid happens, right? Where mm-hmm. you either you are out of work or maybe you're in work and your job, your salary has been cut. That happened uh, to a lot of folks I know. salaries were cut as much as a third. and so or you're relying only on unemployment benefits, and then you can't pay back. so, So what are options at that point? And I understand that, you know, this is, this is not meant to be for folks listening. This isn't meant to be a step-by-step. This is what you do. But just generally speaking, if you're that person, if you have debt that you cannot repay at this point, like what can people do? What are some things that they can, like, obviously one of them would be to consult with an attorney like you, but what are some other steps that folks can take when they find that they are in trouble and can't pay back?
1: Sure. Well- For the federal student loans, the CARES Act put into place a 0% interest forbearance on all federally held student loans from March 13th, 2020, and that was extended through December 31st, 2020. So any federal student loan that is held by the US Department of Education, which are primarily direct loans, as well as some FFEL loans but not all that many and primarily they're the ones that are already that are currently in default those were all put into forbearance okay now if you've got a federal student loan that is not currently held by the US Department of Education so not a direct loan and not one of the few FFEL loans that are that are under the Department of Education's ownership at this point what you can do is you can consolidate them into a direct loan which is just swapping out one loan for another with the Department of Education to ultimately have a single direct loan that then would be in forbearance. But of course, we're getting very close as we record this to what I suspect will be ultimately the end of that forbearance period under the CARES Act. It may get extended, one never knows, but let's presume that it isn't. Okay. So, What you can do is you can look at things like forbearance and deferment, but I'm not a big fan of those because interest does continue to accrue during that period of time. And that interest capitalizes when you come out of forbearance or deferment, which is, I liken it to a menu where there's column A and column B. The interest, which accrues in column B, goes and moves into column A, becomes part of principal, and new interest accrues based upon that larger principal balance. So you've got your ever-widening spiral of interest, and it causes your balance to go up that much more quickly. Mm -hmm. If push comes to shove and you've got no choice, that's fine. But you also have a number of income driven repayment plans that allow you to tailor your federal student loan payment to your taxable income and your family size, which gives you a little bit more freedom Uh, particularly if your income has gone down and made those federal student loans unaffordable for you. You don't want to go into default because once you go into default, collection fees automatically get tacked on top of principal and interest. Those collection fees can be up to about 25% of the principal and interest balance. So your $100,000 federal student loan balance suddenly turns into 125, makes things a lot more difficult. Not to, not to mention any of the enforcement mechanisms like uh, administrative wage garnishment, tax refund offset, uh, offset of other federal benefits such as uh, social security tends to make things a little bit more difficult financially for the borrower. When it comes to private student loans, everything that I just said, completely forget it, because none <laughs> of it applies. Okay. Private student loans is pay or don't pay. That's it, because your only choices. And so, and what I mean by that is there are no programs that you are required to offer to a borrower, that a lender is required to offer to a borrower in the way of forbearances or deferments or anything like that. If you find that you're unable to make your private student loan payments, you've got to pick up the phone, you've got to call your servicer and see what they've got available. They may not have anything available. They may have something that's only available short term, but- if you don't ask, the answer can never be yes.
0: Right. It's interesting that you mentioned, um, when you mentioned default, you talked about garnishment and offset. I get a lot of reader mail. And one of the things that's interesting is that when folks default on student loans, they don't always understand those consequences, especially things like tax refund offsets um, and other things, again, like you mentioned, with other kinds of benefits that, that can be seized. I think sometimes folks think, when they default that they're just not paying and that eventually maybe, maybe somebody will give up on trying to collect, but it's, it's sort of, it's forever and it's, uh, it's, it's debt garnishment and, and, you know, again, refund offsets, things that, you know, I don't know that people always anticipate. What are some of the other consequences of default?
1: Well, for federal student loans, not only the enforcement, but the fact that the enforcement can go on for as long as you walk the earth. Which is there crazy. is no statute of limitations for the enforcement of defaulted federal student loans. And in fact, there's no requirement that there be any enforcement against you at all. So what I mean by that is you can go into default. There can be no consequences financially to you for five, 10, 15. I've seen people who have had no enforcement against them for 25 years or more and suddenly they wake up and there's an administrative wage garnishment on their paycheck or they file their tax return and their refund gets taken and it kind of hits you like out of nowhere right you know you, this this has been kind of a dead issue for 20 plus years suddenly i wake up and the government's chasing me down for this money And the balance is so much higher because interest is continued to accrue for that entire time. And universally, borrower will talk to me and say, "Well, isn't this too late? Shouldn't they have gone away by now?" And the answer is no. They they'll chase you as long as as long as you're around.
0: Well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned they'll chase you for as long as you're around because, and I I know there was some talk about changing this, but there it used to be the case that when you passed away, if your parents had co-signed for the loan that they would then have to be, they would be required to pay it back. Even if you're no longer around, is that still the case
1: for federal student loans? It is not the case. Federal student loans are discharged upon the death of either the borrower or the student,
0: but that's relatively recent, right? Isn't that something that's not been around terribly long?
1: Well, there's, well there's there's that distinction the distinction is between private loans and federal loans okay. private loans the unpaid debt when the borrower passes away the unpaid debt becomes a debt of the estate so if there is an estate that's going to be liquidated that debt has to get paid first and when you're dealing with private loans over 95% of them at this point require co-signers so grandma grandpa mom dad whatever it is
0: mm-hmm. they
1: own a house they pass away. that loan has to be paid out of the proceeds of sale of the house before the beneficiaries get a penny of it.
0: so is there any way to avoid being a co like is that are you saying that without if my kid wanted a um a, a private student loan and I refuse to co-sign, does that mean she can't get a loan? Yeah, wow, okay,
1: unless she's got good enough credit standing that she can qualify on her own but for the most part, private lenders are not going to give a private student loan to you know, some 18, 19, 20-year-old kid who's in school full-time. It's subject to regular underwriting guidelines.
0: Are there any circumstances now where the debt could be canceled?
1: Are we talking about private loans? Are we talking about federal uh, see, loans? See, I've already,
0: I've already made the mistake that you were talking about earlier because I'm talking about them like they're one thing. So let's do federal loans first. (laughs) So so is there any way, if if I owe and simply cannot pay, and it's a federal loan, is there any way to make it go away?
1: There are a number of ways to get federal student loans discharged administratively, forgiven administratively. So I'm not talking about bankruptcy. That's a whole nother universe. Mm -hmm. And we can certainly speak to that. But federal student loans offer a number of discharge and forgiveness options there's a discharge if you are totally and permanently disabled there are discharge options that exist at the end of an income driven repayment plan which is either going to be 20 or 25 years worth of income income adjusted payments so again it's if you can't make payments go into one of the income driven repayment plans so that this way at least you get that clock starting to tick on that long term forgiveness there's also Public service loan forgiveness, which is for people who work for federal, state, municipal, or tribal government full-time or with uh, certain not-for-profits to enable them to cut their payments short at 120 on-time regular monthly payments under certain repayment options. There is also a discharge that is available in the event that you can prove that your school defrauded you in In terms of the nature and quality of the education, that's commonly known as defense to repayment. It is on the books. It has been on the books in some form or another since 1995, I believe, that the regulation was finalized. But it was never really used until a number of years ago when Corinthian colleges imploded. They were a big for profit, for profit operator. And a number of regulations were put into place to allow student borrowers. To get their loans forgiven if they were the victims of school fraud under the current administration they 're not getting approved, so um, again it 's another whole another universe mm-hmm. but in theory it 's on the books it, you know who knows what 's going to happen uh, in the future? Those are your options for federal loans for private loans, everything I just said, forget I said it it's either pay or don't pay. However, and this is this is the biggie, private student loans are subject to a statute of limitations on collection in exactly the same way that a credit card or other regular debt is handled. And what that means is that a private student loan holder cannot take any action against you unless they employ the court system, and they are limited in the amount of time that they can employ the court system. And what I mean by that is to sue you, take you to court, get a judgment, be able to enforce that judgment. That statute of limitation varies state by state. Mm -hmm. For example, though, California is four years from the date of default or last payment, whichever is later. So if you go into default on a private student loan and you're in the state of California, the lender only gets four years to file a lawsuit against you, and if they don't, they
0: can't. Well, and this is why it's important for for folks to seek out professional help because this, much like other kinds of consumer debt, you know, if you've gone three years, three hundred and sixty days, and never done a thing, and then you decide one day to write a twenty five dollar check would that pull you back in for statute of limitations? Yeah, it
1: certainly yeah. could depending upon the state that you're in. It certainly could. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen where people will cut that proverbial $25 check on a private student loan that is wholly unenforceable and has been unenforceable for a significant amount of time. They acknowledge that debt in writing, they cut a check for 25 bucks and guess what they've got a brand new 4 years to start with or 6 years in new york or you know it, it again it varies state by state so yeah it's 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 bad but i have seen a number of people who have gone way past statute of limitations for collection on their private student loans
0: so yeah, i think it's important to make sure that you seek out a professional in these situations but i do know that like with tax bills. There are certain companies that seek out folks who are in trouble and maybe offer them unrealistic expectations or take their money and don't give them maybe the result that was best for them. So do you have any tips on how to find someone to help you? And not only that, but like, when is the best time to ask for help? Is it when you can't pay? Is it when you graduate? Is it when you see that things are going badly? Like, when should people look for help? And how do they find someone who's not going to rip them off? Because I, I do know that there are, are folks who have come to me and said that people will give them advice that maybe wasn't useful. Or they yeah. took their money and said, we're going to help you. But really, they just put them into one of those debt consolidation plans. If
1: we're, we're doing this only by audio, mm-hmm. but if we were doing this by video, you would see me making the Macaulay Calkin face from Home Alone, because <laughs> it's exactly what it is. When, when you owe money on student loans or, or really any debt whatsoever, you're walking around with a target on your back. Because all of these companies know that you are desperate mm-hmm. and looking for a solution. And a lot of people are just willing to throw whatever money that needs to be thrown on this super secret resolution and this brand new program that's expiring in 25 minutes or you know what have you. Mm-hmm. I will say that these, these are the things that should not lead you to a buying decision. When I say buying, I mean hiring somebody you should not hire somebody who approaches you first by phone or by text or by postcard or by mail offering their services for resolution of this amorphous sort of thing that's going on because they'll they'll tend to be very short on specifics right because if they were being specific then why would you need them at least that's that's the way that their thinking goes it is not easy to find a professional that really understands this and that's the big problem a couple of a couple of good places to look if you don't need a lawyer if you're just coming out of school and you're just looking to put a plan together you may not need a lawyer in fact and you may want to talk to a financial planner, somebody who is well-versed in student loans. You may want to talk to your CPA or your CFP or your tax accountant. There are a couple of folks that I know who do this almost exclusively. They're very good at their job and they really do impart a lot of knowledge during the course of any conversation with a borrower. When things start to get tricky is I can't make the payment this month and I don't know what to do. I haven't been able to make the payment and I don't know what to do. My loan has been moved around a bunch of times and people who are calling me are a little bit angrier than I would (laughs) otherwise hope that they would be. Right. That's the time that you want to talk to ideally a lawyer, but may again begin with a conversation with a financial planner. It's not simple to find somebody where it does become important is in taking your time to properly vet whoever it is that you do speak to. In this age of knowledge being almost free and information certainly being free-flowing, I think that it's a lot easier to be able to suss out who is and who isn't Actually qualified to do the job that they say that they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, do more than just a simple Google search of somebody who can help me with my student loans. Whoever you're going to find, take some time to dig into them. Look at their socials, look at uh, their LinkedIn, look to see if they've got any uh, if they've got any mentions in mainstream media. And mainstream, I just mean somebody who's reputable in your universe. That's the, those are really your starting points, I think.
0: Going backwards a little bit when we talk about starting points, before you get to that place, you know, when you're looking at ways to finance your education, uh, one of the things that you and I had talked about before was, you know, this idea that a lot of parents feel compelled to pay for their students, for their, for their children to, to go to college. Which, you know, if you're in a position to be able to do that, then you know, hooray. But sometimes I think parents think that they have to pay for things and they get themselves into trouble. And uh, you and I had spoken about, um, you know, I had a client who uh, who raided his retirement account right before retirement to pay off well to pay for his child's education and unfortunately didn't understand that when he took that money out of the retirement account, he had to pay taxes on it in one year. It put him up into a different bracket, and he had to pay an early withdrawal penalty because he was not yet retirement age and then he was looking forward to retirement with no money in that in that account, but a big tax bill. Are there ways to and and you've you you've alluded to some before i mean obviously there's being smart about choice you and I talked about. And when I talked about my daughter, you know, you you look at scholarships, not everything is equal, not all schools are equal, not all financial packages are equal. But what are the kinds of things that folks should be looking at when they're looking to finance education with the understanding that not everybody has a parent that can pay out of pocket? And then also that even though we're going to pretend like an 18-year-old should have the wherewithal to understand what, you know, borrowing $100,000 feels like, the reality is they do not So, you know, what kinds of, if you're, if parents are listening now, what would you be telling them? Like, what should, what kinds of conversations should you be having and, and where can they look to find out alternatives or options, or at least to educate themselves about what's going to happen? Because again, we can talk all day long about how people should make smart decisions, but it's really hard to know what that means until you're in that moment.
1: Sure. Sure. The first thing I think that any parent needs to understand is that their, their child is not possessing of the capacity to make long-term decisions in a way that the parent is able to. The prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until your 20s and some say almost, almost 30 years old. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that allows you to make long-term planning decisions. So you can't ask an 18-year-old, how are you going to pay the student loan in four years? They honestly can't grasp it. Right. It, it, it is unreal. So that's the starting point for the parent. The parent has to understand, this isn't my kid's responsible or my kid's not responsible. My kid is still a kid. They're a whole lot taller than they used to be. I can't put them up on my shoulders anymore and they don't listen to me anymore. But they're still a kid. Yeah. And so you gotta start with that. I think that the first thing that that the parent needs to do with the child, because the child does have to play an active role in it, is understanding how much the tuition is going to cost. That's first and foremost. How much is this going to cost over the next four years? We know what this year it's going to be we know probably what it's going to be for the next three. We don't know for sure, but we kind of have an idea of how much tuition goes up on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. So approximately how much is this going to cost? What can we do to lower the cost of tuition? What can we do to lower the cost of going to school, cost of your meal plans, the cost of your housing, the cost of your transportation? Room and board is not set in stone, particularly for students who are not living on campus in the dorms. Right. If you're not living in a dorm, you get to figure out how much rent you can afford to pay, how many housemates or roommates you're gonna have. And so you need to take a look at those things because it really does a lot to bring your costs down. That's where things like um going to school locally, commuter schools. Community colleges, things like that really start to play an active role because when you're in a community college or you're in a commuter school, you're coming home at least during the weekends, probably every night. You're more likely to be eating at home or not eating on the school's meal plan. Those things are going to reduce your costs an enormous amount.
0: Mm-hmm. Also,
1: books, materials, supplies. Textbooks are really expensive
0: oh my if gosh, you're buying yes. them new.
1: <laughs> Yes. But only if you're buying them new. If you're buying them used, maybe not quite as expensive. And there are options to to look into on those parts.
0: And you can rent books now. This is something we found out this year. You can actually rent textbooks. There are um, Amazon and some other programs offer textbook rentals where you pay a fee and then you just, it expires like after a certain amount of time. So you you rent the book for the semester rather than paying 300 bucks for a book you use a few months
1: which is fantastic. Yeah. I wish they had had that when I was in school. Me too. <laughs> so, yeah, those are things to look into. Also, there are certain classes, it most publishers are going to bring out a new edition every year because that's that's how they get you mm-hmm. as as they say. Yep. But a lot of times these textbooks from the 8th edition to the 7th edition, not so much of a difference. If you're in philosophy 101 it hasn't really changed so maybe look at last year's edition mm-hmm. that may also save you some money if if you're not going to be able to go the rental route uh, obviously you're going to have to pick and choose on where where it's a wiser choice but these are things to be able to look at so reducing the cost of school if you are starting at a community college with an eye towards transferring to a four year school make sure you know whether your community college is considered a feeder school for the four-year institution that you ultimately want to go into. There's some community colleges that actually function as feeder schools for some pretty well-known and highly regarded four-year institutions. Mm -hmm. It may be where you want to start. They're less expensive. You know that so long as you do X, Y, and Z, and you perform well enough, you can transition from the two-year to the four-year institution, save a lot of money there as well. Mm -hmm. So Those are things that you can do. A gap year is something I am a big fan of. Taking a year or even two years, depending upon who you are and what you actually want to do in college, take a year to figure out the things that might interest you also use that time to make a little bit of money to help to some of those costs of higher education.
0: One of the things we found out this year is that most schools, because gap years, I think maybe when you and I were in college were not a thing, but nowadays Mm -hmm. it's a thing. And so depending on the school, a lot of schools will, if you um, are awarded a scholarship, for example, will allow you to keep that scholarship. Even if you do take the gap year, you know, obviously, depending on the program and the school, that is something to keep in mind, because I think a lot of parents, that's kind of like w- one of our concerns was, what do you mean? Like, if you take a, if you take a year off, what does that mean for, for the plan? You know, we've worked <laughs> for the plan. Um, and it, I do think it's really nice that uh, a lot of the schools are becoming more flexible about those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So those are, those are definitely things to look into scholarships also are far, it's a far deeper pool than most people would otherwise believe. When I was going to college, a scholarship was if you got certain grades or you were going to a certain school, you're going to undertake a certain course of study. There are literally scholarships for everything. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about big money scholarships. It's a couple of hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there. And a lot of that money actually goes unclaimed because people don't really pay attention to them. And those couple hundred dollars here and there, they really do add up. There was a story, I think it was this past spring, I, this past academic year, about some high school student in, in Georgia who I think got $100,000 in scholarships or some absurd amount of money in scholarships. Because she applied everywhere. She applied to any open scholarship. She just gave it a shot. Mm -hmm. And there are so many resources online that I encourage every student to look at, every parent to look at. And don't just look at them while you're in high school because maybe you missed out on freshman year, but you can always apply next year and you can still get a scholarship for sophomore year. Right. Money's money. You might as well take it.
0: My daughter's college sends us, even now she's a freshman, but they send us the scholarship opportunities by email that they kind of aggregate from around the globe. Um, And they continue to send those, which is great. And a lot of them are things like essay contests where you might be, you know, maybe math was tough for you. So your grades weren't great, but you're an excellent writer. So here's your opportunity.
1: Absolutely. And, And, you know, even where you grew up or what your parents did for a living or where your parents grew up or what your religious or sociological backgrounds are. Right? Mm-hmm. There's, there are scholarships for everything. I am certain that if you're a fan of a certain big box retailer or large fast food chain, I'm betting that they've got a scholarship.
0: Right. And for employees of those places as well, like if you work while you're in high school or, or your first few years of college, if you work for major companies, even on fast food lines, like any of those kinds of things. I've also seen uh, scholarships for employees of those companies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, as I said, it's a far deeper pool than most people realize.
0: And I would be remiss if I didn't say that there are also educational tax credits available. Um, I, I rue that they are not better than they should be. There's also a deduction for interest paid on student loans. Again, kind of horrified at the amount. It's uh 2500 per tax return. So that's not per person, per tax return. So, and, and it actually phases out pretty early on. So the more money you make, which is ironic, but the more money you make, the uh, less opportunity that you have for the deduction. Um, but those those educational credits and uh, deductions are available. So I would encourage people listening to ask their tax professionals about those when they are um, having their taxes done.
1: Yeah. There are two last things that I, I want to bring up. For federal student loans, if if the student is able to be considered as an independent financial entity, if they are an independent student not dependent upon their parents financially, they are going to qualify for better financial aid in in terms of uh, federal student loans as well as certain grants. So, if that's and and that's not going to be applicable to a lot of people, but it is going to be applicable for some borrowers. So that's something to bear in mind. And last but not least, this is not a time to have a big ego about yourself when it comes to spending money. If you're deciding between two schools and all things are relatively in the same ballpark as far as quality of education and where you would otherwise want to go there's nothing wrong with calling the financial aid office and say, look, I'm weighing my options between here and here. This is how much it's going to cost here. This is how much it's going to cost with you. Is there anything else that you might be able to do to be able to bring down the cost of my education if I come to your school? There's always wiggle room. There really is.
0: Well, I, I think especially now when I do believe that colleges will um, maybe have a different, I think for a really long time, it was, there were a lot of folks going. <laughs> and I think that in a, <laughs> in, a, in a post-pandemic era, I suspect that colleges will be rethinking not only the way that they deliver an education, but but who they're delivering it to.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much for this. This has been terrific. If folks wanted to find you, on the web or on social, and you wanted to be found, um, where would you send them?
1: <laughs> you can go to moneywiselaw.com, which is my main website hub. There's contact information, phone numbers, et cetera, et cetera. I am Jay Fleischman on most social channels. The only difference is on TikTok, I am MoneyWise Lawyer. So that's really the only place where I'm not going by my uh, first and last name as a username. Find me anywhere. I am everywhere.
0: I will definitely include those links in the show notes. And I must say that I cannot believe you're on TikTok. I think you're the first lawyer that I've known that has an actual legal presence on TikTok that shared that.
1: Oh, we we are a growing subcontingent. We really are.
0: That's amazing.
1: It is the most addictive platform I've ever been on. It, it's
0: <laughs> you, you must be looking at different things than me because I get a lot of pictures of uh, my, my kids' friends dancing in the bath. That's what I'm seeing on TikTok. So I'm going to take a look at it. I'm going to go look you up. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. That is not my TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I will definitely check it out. And again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Kelly.
0: Thanks. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.